Good day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to our eighth episode of Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. Our theme for Series 6, taking the Australian ecosystem from good to great, continues with a personal view about investment, when it makes sense, and how to ask for help. This has got to be a core competency of any startup entrepreneur, and it's frequently one where folks are found wanting. So we'll take a look at examples, both good and bad, in a crash course I'm calling Fill in the Blanks. Cap in hand on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by MYOB. Running a startup is pretty cool, but doing the books isn't. MYOB makes it easier. For your free trial, visit myob.com slash twista. Twista is sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by engaging, inspiring, and connecting driven students. If you'd like to mentor, invest in, or support our startups, email startups at uts.edu.au. Twista is also sponsored by Creative3. The future is creative. Seize it at Creative3 on the 14th of September in Brisbane. Learn more at creative3.co. arrived a few days ago. Hi, Mark. Hope you're well. We're currently looking to raise 250k for our startup. I was wondering if you knew anyone who might be interested or who might be worth talking to. That's the whole email. All of it. Now, I'm not going to name the startup because this is not a name and shame game. But what I am going to do is show you where this very simple plea for help fell down and how it could be done a lot better. Because I reckon this is an important point, and this is something that maybe people aren't being taught in an incubator or in an accelerator, and I'm not really sure why. Now, perhaps it's because people expect that you know how to ask for money, or perhaps it's because they teach you that you're always pitching, always pitching, always pitching. It's an odd thing because... This email, and I read it a few times, there wasn't a lot there to read, but this email contained exactly nothing that I might need to pique my interest. There was nothing in it that would inspire me to open up my contacts and have a look through to think about who might be a good fit. And that's that's just for starters. Now, I've just come off of being entrepreneur in residence at the Incubate program at the University of Sydney. And there are three things that we teach them that are very important, three things that they need to lead with. Product market fit, customers, and traction. Now, I want to take each of these and unroll them a little bit. 
So product market fit, it's sort of that magical sweet spot when you've identified a product that the customers want and you've built enough of that product to learn that, yes, actually, customers are willing to pay you for what you are creating. So product market fit is not the initial brainwave that the entrepreneur has when they set up a business. It's not the initial brainwave that the customer has when you run the idea by them. It's a process. Fitting is a process. It's like getting a suit fit. You know, it can come back from the tailor and you're still going to have to have maybe the shoulders widened or the crotch dropped or the length of the trousers taken up. Who knows what it's going to be? But you're going to actually have to iterate through this because there's no way to know really at the beginning until you're fitting it on the body whether that suit is going to fit. And the same thing is true for product market fit because there are so many things about a product that really don't take life until you actually put it into a customer's hands. Things that you haven't thought about, things that the customer hasn't thought about, things around the use case that haven't been thought through. And until you actually get to that moment where there is a product and there's a customer and the customer is using that product and changing that product in the use of that product, you can't really tell us whether you have a successful business and you can't really tell us whether you have a customer that's willing to pay you good money for the product. So product market fit, it's the foundation. And we spend a lot of time at Incubate helping these very young customers find that sweet spot because we reckon that if they get that sweet spot and they can find out how to reach customers from that sweet spot, then the other things, they're they're remediable. You can actually deal with those problems. But if you don't have a product, you kind of don't have anything. Okay, so once you have the product, you've got to tick that second box, customers. Now, if you've been doing the product market fit correctly, what you've been doing is you've been interacting with customers the entire time. And again, this is a very big thing we do at Incubate. We send them out to talk to customers. Talk to customers. Talk to customers. Find out what they want. Find out what they need. Find out how you can fix their problems. Find out how you can make their lives better. Find out how you can make something so good that they are singing your praises. So that's that second level. And you you do often find entrepreneurs who either think their product is so good they shouldn't have to sing the praises to customers or they're afraid to talk to customers because they're afraid that the customers are going to tell them that their baby is ugly, which, by the way, customers always do. And this is just part of the deal when you're an entrepreneur is that you're going to constantly have everyone offering you free advice on why your product stinks. That's good. That's okay. Some of that advice will be good. Some of that advice you'll ignore. It doesn't matter. But at least they're engaging with you. At least they're telling you what they think. It's, it's much better to have that than to have some form of indifference. Now, some percentage of those folks are going to be excited enough that they're going to want to enter into a deal with you for that product. So they're going to be your first customers. And your first customers, they're really interesting because in a lot of ways, your first customers set the direction for your product and for your company in ways that you had never expected because the demands of those first customers will drive development of the product, which will then drive the kinds of market that the product is applicable to. So there's this interesting feedback between your first customers and your product and your product market fit, which ends up giving you something that's probably different than you originally intended, but better suited to at least those first customers. 
But this is where it gets interesting because the third item on that list is traction. Yes, you've got those first customers. Yes, you may be making those first customers happy. How do you continuously grow that list of customers? How do you continuously accelerate into larger and larger numbers of customers? Have you created a product that's really only good for a single customer? And this is, of course, the big question because in that product market fit around a customer, you have to be thinking about the fact that there is more than one customer, that solving this customer's problem is good, but solving many customers' problems. Now, that's a real business. And that involves not just crafting the product to a range of customers, but it involves the skill of selling your product to a range of customers. And that is not the same skill. You need to be just as good at this skill or else you're not going to be able to grow the business and your business falls over at the first gate. Because no matter how good your product is, it's not going to sell itself. It doesn't work that way. None of this happens without a lot of work. None of this happens without a lot of mistakes. You can talk to everyone. We just had Tim Fung on talking about all the things that he's learned and all of the mistakes that he's made trying to sell Airtasker to different markets and different countries and different audiences. This is a trial and error process, and growing the market, growing traction is trial and error because you're learning about your customers, but you're also learning how to talk to your customers in their language. Okay, so these are these three big points. And investors need to know where you are in this process. They need to know where you are with product market fit. They need to know where you are with your customers. They need to know where you are with traction. And interestingly, they also need to know where you are in where you've made your mistakes. Have you made your mistakes growing yet? Which side of those mistakes are you on? Are those mistakes behind you? You've already made those mistakes. You have traction. You're growing. Or are they before you? Now, that doesn't mean that there's ever going to be a time when you stop making mistakes, but there is going to be a time when you make a lot of them and the time, hopefully, when you're making less of them. So none of this. None of this product market fit or customers or traction or knowing where you are on your learning curve. None of that came through in this email. This email, it asked for investment without providing a single reason why that might be a startup worth investing in. Now, I don't think it's because this person doesn't have a good story to tell. I don't think it's because they can't lead with product market fit or customers or traction. I actually reckon that this person has all of these. I reckon what's more likely the case is that he didn't think to lead with these key pieces of information because from inside his startup, he can't see how much they matter to someone outside the startup. And yet, they're the way everyone outside his startup judges the health of his startup. They're the tools that we use to weigh the chances of the eventual success of that startup, of turning a profit, of paying back an investor. And so this has got to be the very first rule. When asking for investment, in the same moment that you have to convince someone of your need for money, you have to be able to show them how you will be returning that money to them. This is rule one. This is not a question that you can defer. This is not a question to deflect. This is the only question that matters when you're asking for money. Now, we cover this a lot in the Incubate program, but I still see a lot of entrepreneurs making this mistake. And 
This is either a sign that they don't take the business of raising money seriously, at least not as seriously as they do their own business, or it's a sign that they don't actually understand what the investor needs to see. Either of those are fatal mistakes. They're fatal mistakes, but they're mistakes that I see all the time. And and one of the takeaways here is that you see a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly first-time entrepreneurs, who are running around trying to raise money for their business or maybe thinking they're trying to raise money for their business without really understanding the language that investors need to hear in order to take them seriously when they're entertaining an offer to invest in the business. And it's that disconnect which is the same as when we started this podcast five years ago. We see the same entrepreneurs or different entrepreneurs but making the same mistakes here as we go on, putting the wrong kinds of questions to investors or potential investor contacts such as myself, presenting the wrong kinds of information to them, and then expecting great results. Well, here's the thing. You need to be clear. You need to be open. It's okay to ask for money. Not only is it okay, there's an expectation that when you ask for money, you will be providing the people you're asking for money with the information that they need to assess your request. Now, that doesn't mean you should be overwhelming people with information. I mean, this email didn't necessarily need to have a lot of data, but it needed to have enough for me to go on, and that wasn't there. Okay, so that's one kind of mistake that entrepreneurs make when they're asking for money. There's another kind. Now, there's another entrepreneur who has asked for help getting investment in his startup. I said, okay, we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to put together a standard pitch deck. Now, he hasn't done that before. So I said, okay, we're going to need to put together the following elements. We're going to need to know the problem that you've identified. We're going to need to know your solution, which is a product. We're going to need to know what the market for your product is, both the immediate market and the total addressable market. We're going to need to know your strategy for getting your product into the hands of your customers. We're going to need to know the team that you've put together to do all of this. And we're going to need to know the amount of capital that you need to raise to reach each of these goals. Now, there's nothing unusual about any of this. This this is sort of Startup 101. These are the basics. These are the absolute bottom line things that anyone is going to need to see, both if they're going to involve themselves in the business and if they're going to invest themselves in the business. And I sent off that request. And, you know, about a week later, I got back a very short email where he'd taken each of these lines and basically given me three or four words to explain each of these things. So three or four words about the product, three or four words about the market, three or four words about the strategy, three or four words about the money. And and I wrote him back, and I'll, I'll quote my reply. I said, I feel like there's something not quite connecting here, that this isn't selling any of this to me. It's stating facts and figures. Now, I don't know how to raise any funding for this venture until you can convince people of what you're doing and why it's amazing. These answers, they feel too quick. They feel too neat. They feel too pat. So go back and have a good think, I said. I said, 
you need to have a think about whether you have time for this because it looks like you've barely attended to it. Now, maybe you sweated days and days over this, but I can't really tell. That's how it feels to me. And he wrote me back pretty quickly. He said, you know, Mark, you're absolutely right. We were, I was too quick with this. I actually do need to go back and have a really good think about it. And I think there's another lesson here, which is that saying you're raising money, saying you're raising capital is not a cavalier statement. It is not a throwaway line. It is a commitment to a process of engagement. And that commitment has to be complete because you are asking people to put their hard cash on the line. And the least that they can expect from you in that process is that you are fully committed to the process of getting investment, that you will be fully engaged every step along the way, that you will be putting your full suite of resources as an entrepreneur, as a business person, as a technologist, as a marketer, as a salesperson. All of those have to be on display from the moment you say we are raising investment. Because Every one of those things is being observed by the investor. It's not just what you're putting into your pitch deck. It's how you're doing it. It's how you're communicating. It's how you're engaging. At every step along the way, the investor is evaluating every element in that. What they're doing is they're seeing not just if you can talk the talk, but if you are walking the walk in all of your actions. If you can't walk the walk while you're raising money to run your business, you will not be able to run your business. It's that simple. Because if there's a disconnect over something as simple as fundraising. If there's something as basic as that missing in the business, then there is no chance for that business to have any sort of long-term success because you are not bringing yourself to the party. You clearly have an idea, you have a business that you want to run, but when it comes right down to it, when it comes down to the fact that you're going to have to work in concert with others and respect them for their intelligence and for the capital that they are bringing to your business, if you can't return that respect with respect, return that hard work with hard work, if you can't step up and give everyone the best of what you have to give, Well, you're going to be judged for that, and you are not going to find the investment that you want. And I think that this is actually the biggest reason, the main reason that companies don't get investment. It's not that they're bad ideas. It's that they are not truly committed to the process. And being committed to that process is a matter of both being able to front up to the investor in a realistic, honest, and very committed way, but also being possessed of a plan that shows that investor how they will receive a return on their investment. Now, this story has a happy ending because not only did he come back to me and said, you're right, I need to think it through. He's, he's engaged with me and, and I will be sitting down with him again shortly and we will be going through all of this in detail. And you can expect that I will be pushing him for detailed explorations of answers to each of these basic questions. He may be thinking of these, but I need to actually get him to think them through in a way that allows an investor to engage with all of these so that an investor can get the same feeling and the same passion and the same depth of their business as this entrepreneur does. When we come back from the break, we will listen to an interview from two years ago, the best interview ever on Twista about investment. I think we can learn more from listening to this interview than anything else I can tell you. 
MYOB saves businesses time, helps improve cash flow, gets invoices paid faster, gives real-time visibility of profit and loss, and makes payroll easy. With MYOB, you can create, send, and track customized invoices. This is awesome because Australian businesses can wait on average 43 days to get paid. With MYOB, your clients can pay you directly from your invoices. People who use the MYOB online invoicing solution get paid four times faster. MYOB software will let you know when you've been paid, then update the accounts. You don't have to lift a finger. MYOB's online solutions make pay runs quick and easy, ensuring all of your tax and super payments are compliant with the Australian Tax Office. You can save half a day every month on processing employee pay. MYOB's mobile app means you can create a quote on the job, send invoices straight from the app, and even get paid on the same day you invoice. 1.2 million businesses in Australia and New Zealand use MYOB. Startups, sole traders, and small businesses, all the way up to companies with hundreds of staff. Whatever your stage or size, MYOB has a solution for you. Twista listeners will get a free 30-day trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will also get $100 in cash. Go to myob.com slash twista for your free trial today. Back in 2016, I invited Deb Noller, who is the co-founder and CEO of Switch Automation, onto This Week in Startups Australia because I'd been very impressed at an event where she'd spoken, and I wanted to actually sort of get stuck into her role as a CEO. In the second half of our conversation, we had the best discussion of what it takes to find investment and the attitude that you need for investing that I've ever heard on this show. So here's that interview with Deb Noller. And we're back. We're talking to Deb Noller, the CEO of Switch Automation. All right. So you've just had this, I guess, wake up moment. You've thrown everything out. You're going to now start again. And during this process, you also now need to raise money to be able to create a SaaS business. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk about that? How much money have you raised so far to make the business happen? We raised for the first time last year in 2015. So that was a deal led by Scale Investors who uh, invest in women-led businesses here in Australia. Uh, so they did the term sheet. The term sheet was great and the due diligence was great and the investment group was well um, respected. So it was very easy for us off the back of that term sheet to raise um, quite a bit of money. So we raised $1.3 million at the beginning of the year mm. and another $1.2 million at the end of the year. So $2.5 million Australian dollars in total last year. So that really gave us the growth capital to go from being just a technology team, a mm. group of people that were developing technology, into a team that could actually execute on that technology. So we've been able to hire a salesperson, a marketing person, and then a full domain uh, uh, expertise team around building. So en- energy engineers and mechanical engineers, people and a data scientist, people that can actually take our technology and, and put it into into projects and really do some great stuff with it. Did it 
was it easier for you to raise because they seen that you'd worked so hard over the last 10 years with, you know, basically being self-funded? Do you think that when they looked at you, they they took that into account? I reckon that's probably a negative for most people because it, 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 what most investors are looking for is somebody who has come up with something and can show traction mm. quickly. That's what most investors are looking for. The longer you've been around, I think, is actually a negative thing. Um, for us, they probably looked at me and went, well, I think there's a couple of things. One, we had we had finally ca- come to this really fantastic scalable business model mm-hmm. and we were getting traction with the right customers and they could see we were going global. So there was a number of things I think that lined up. I'd, I'm not sure that how long we'd been around was actually a factor in why they invested so in So not in the ours. fact that you would have been so resilient that you were actually able to stay at this for 10 years. You don't think that that ticked a box for them? I think they could see that I was resilient. And, I mean, that's... Anybody who knows me knows that I'm resilient. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I'm not sure that that was really why they would have invested in us. I think most investments are done on whether you, they really believe that you've got what... It, you, the person, has got what it takes mm-hmm. to build this business and give them a return. Mm-hmm. And, secondly, do you have a product that's actually going to deliver on all of these promises that you're making? And, thirdly, is the market attractive? So, unless you've got all of those things, I mean, just being around a long time, I don't think, is going to give you uh, an investment. All right. So, where the business is now, you're now glo- growing globally and you're spending most of your time in the U.S. because is that now your growth market? Yes. So, we're not targeting the whole world yet because our team of 38 people uh, is still, you know, a pretty significant tech team. Mm. Uh, and there's, you know, 15 people in the business operations side of our business. So, we're really only tackling two markets just to prove that this is infinitely scalable and to show our traction. Uh, I would anticipate that we'll do a a Series A fundraising round next January of somewhere between $7 and $15 million. And that's for global marketing. And then then we'll uh, do our global, you know, expansion. Okay, mm-hmm. so you so there's a there's a real plan here around how you can get to one level test and then get to the next level. Absolutely, we we fully expect that our platform will be the global standard for how people manage buildings within five years. It will be where people are wondering why you're not using Switch to manage your buildings. How big is that market? It's an enormous market. It's it's a twenty billion dollar market just in building management systems. Mm-hmm. If you then expand that out into the whole IoT space, it, it's it's yeah, it's enormous. In in the US alone, there's over five million commercial buildings. So, are you the next Atlassian? Are you the next invoice to go? I would like to think so. I would like to think so. I mean, we certainly in our space, we're in quite a complex industry. Mm-hmm. It, you have to really understand the nuances of the industry the other technologies that are out there the fact that switch is actually born in the cloud it's not an old bms system that's been migrated into the cloud you have to understand that we're totally hardware agnostic so we can we can equally hook up a johnson control system with a schneider system Uh, there's a lot of nuances in there and unless you actually understand that you might not quite get just the gold mine that we're sitting on. But but when I hear that, as someone who would be thinking from an investor, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, look at all those lovely barriers to entry there. 
right? You, you can't get someone who's just going to pop out the gate solving all of the problems that switch automation is solving because what you're talking about is all the years that you spent building all of this technology. Mm-hmm. So, so a lot, you're right. A lot of investors don't get it and it's way too complex for them to peel off the layers to understand it. But when you do get people that have some sort of interest in this space, in this industry, mm. and, uh, and know the other technologies that are in the market, they totally understand it. All right. The beginning of this series, we had Yvonne Everett on, mm-hmm. who is both a member of Scale as one of the Correct. angel investors. Mm-hmm. She also sits on your board. She does. And we had an amazing conversation about what it's like to be a director of an Australian startup company. And you are the CEO of that company. So what is your experience I think both working with the board on a regular basis, but, you know, where do you see, particularly because you now have a board of an investor, so things changed last year, and that when you took investment, you get board members. How has that changed your own journey and your own role? It's certainly given me more people to consider because I have, sitting behind our board is a whole bunch of people that have written checks and invested in our company. So I actually have a fiduciary duty to those people to run a, a ship-shaped business and to return them um, some sort of return. Mm. So I, I definitely take that on board. It's one of the reasons that I didn't take investment prior to last year. I wanted to make sure that we actually had a viable business with a viable technology in a viable market. Um, so definitely that's one of the huge considerations. Um, we've always operated this company as if it was going to have investment so Mm -hmm. we've always run a business that's incredibly clean there's no you know there's no personal expenses in there we know that you know that at some point in time somebody is going to basically unravel every single transaction and inspect it so from that perspective there's not been any you know there's been no changes in the way we run our business um, the things that the board brings is a much more conservative attitude to risk than than a CEO has of a, of a startup. How so? Well, they they worry about things like, um, you know, if you uh, if you ran out of money tomorrow, right? How many how many months of liquidation cash do you need? Right. Whereas I don't think about things <laughs> like that. I, I I worry about can I make payroll next week? Right. Can I make payroll next month? Um, you know, so I'm just worried about a day-to-day cash flow. I'm not sitting here thinking about, well, if we wound up tomorrow, I would need three months worth of cash. So they bring a far more uh, regimented approach, I suppose, to things that are the regular CEO wouldn't necessarily be, you know, be considering. So I guess some things have changed a lot and some things not so much at all. Now, when it comes to, I guess, the strategic decisions for where the company is going, is that a conversation? Is that um, more you telling them? How does that actually work? And how do you sort of negotiate that? Because there are now all of these voices. Well, they invested in me yes. and they invested in our business. So, And we know way more about this market and the environment that we're operating in than anybody who's invested in our in our in our space so in in many respects they have to 
they have to be relying on on our strate- on our strategy because that's what they invested in. Mm. So I don't uh, we don't typically invite too much input on strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are much more interested in how our board can help us. Uh, now, with contacts now, and things like now, that. Actually, the, the, so this is tr- this is I guess as a CEO of a of a growing business, you have to think about the board for now and the and the board for. I would imagine over the next twelve months, when we take our Series A round, I actually think our board will change. Mm-hmm. I think our board then will become much more. Appropriate's a bad word, but that they'll be more skilled and have more to offer us in terms of how we grow our business from a you know a, a thirty million dollar business into a three hundred million dollar business, for example. It's the board you need for the exactly, task at hand. Exactly, and and that's actually I've met a few CEOs who've kind of beaten themselves up about you know they hired a consultant or they hired a, an advisor and then they let that advisor go because they weren't doing the right thing and i've said that's the journey you you use as as awful as this sounds you you take people on along the way that uh, that provide you with the advice and the input that you need at that time mm. but if you're doing a great job you'll outgrow them yeah. and then you'll need other people deb Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on This Week in Startups Australia. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Entrepreneurship. It's the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. With almost half of UTS students wanting to create their own jobs or start their own companies, equipping students with the tools to become entrepreneurs has become critical to their success. Sydney's leadership and strength as Australia's largest startup ecosystem requires a steady, well-supported pipeline of entrepreneurial talent. Working at the heart of this ecosystem, UTS plays a critical role, inspiring and connecting thousands of talented students into that pipeline. UTS is committed to ensuring a thriving and growing base for the startup sector, investing heavily in this future today for Australia's tomorrow. Get in touch. Email startups at uts.edu.au to find out more. We recently launched a new segment for Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia, asking all of the many incubator and accelerator programs running across the country to spruik their programs to Twista listeners in their own words. This week, we'll hear from Warren Bingham, General Manager of Sakata Innovations MedTech, about their MedLab Accelerator. Take it away, Warren. Hi, my name's Warren Bingham, and I'm the General Manager of Cicada Innovations MedLab, their first MedTech Accelerator program. It's our inaugural program starting on October the 15th, 2018, and it's been made possible due to some recent uh, success of portfolio companies within Cicada and uh, their successful exit. And as a result, very pleased to see uh, Cicada Innovations invest um, their funds directly into the medical devices sector. I myself have spent over 25 years in the medical technology space and uh, really am pleased to see how 
the deep tech incubator of Cicada Innovations are, uh, if you will, reinvesting into that space. MedLab is a mentor-driven uh, uh, medtech accelerator, and uh, essentially we're looking for early-stage founders who are building uh, their high-tech technologies and medical businesses, both in Australia and also um, with plans to go overseas as well. So we're looking for six medical device startup companies. Uh, and as a result, um, we're uh, opening up uh, applications um, as we speak, um, and they'll be open for submission until September the 2nd. The reason we're doing this at Cicada is that we believe in the need and also in the value in supporting medical technology companies and startups. Uh, there are more uh, uh, ideas and innovations out there than there are startups and incubators available to support. So we're very pleased to uh, be part of that process and to contribute significantly uh, in this space and to helping companies be successful. The program will be broken up in two stages. The first stage will be a comprehensive four-month residential program held here at Cicada Innovations, where we will require the founders of the companies to reside here for that first 16-odd uh, week process, starting on the 15th of October and finishing up uh, just prior to Christmas for the Christmas break and then returning back in, in mid-January uh, and finishing up at the end of February. Through that program, we will run them through a very condensed and concentrated uh, uh, introduction to key industry experts, mentors and speakers who will all come to share their knowledge uh, so that we can teach, learn and share from each other uh, in ways to which um, what should and should not be done and things to avoid and more importantly things to do when it comes to building their businesses. A key part of the program to get these startups off the ground or to help them continue with their early stage journey is that Cicada Innovations are investing $50,000 in each of the six companies that we're looking for. The valuation, if you will, will be based on a million dollar vow, so $50,000 will, will essentially give Cicada Innovations a 5% stake equity into the business. And if there has been other previous valuations and recent valuations um, and transactions done, then certainly we'll talk to those companies uh, about that and um, probably that'll be our starting point. But we believe that the capital injection will no doubt help them get through some of the fundamentals of setting up their company uh, and getting the right advice. And more importantly, we'll be empowering um, each of the founders uh, through uh, the introduction of um, world-leading experts from all over Australia into this program. The applications are open uh, and uh, they're open until the 2nd of September. So if anybody's interested, we encourage you to, uh, to get online to cicadainnovations.com, <clears throat> look for the accelerator banner and, um, and, and you can apply online from there. If anybody has any questions whatsoever, um, by all means also, um, please send us some, um, contact us at Cicada Innovations um, or visit our website for further information. Thank you very much, Mark, for your interest and your support in Cicada Innovations MedLab. We're very excited um, to, be, uh, to be launching this program. Uh, tomorrow evening, uh, uh, be it the 31st of July, we are holding our first information session at 5.30pm. Again, registrations for that, they're free, uh, but we do ask delegates or um, guests interested to come to register online via cicadainnovations.com. Thanks very much for your interest.
Creative 3 is back for 2018, and once again, I'll be your MC. This year, Creative 3 looks a little bit different. September the 14th will be the Night of Nights for Creatives, a three-course dinner celebrating the trailblazers, disruptors, thought leaders, and futurists. Creative 3 is designed for and by creative enterprise professionals to address some of the key challenges facing the industry, offering the rare opportunity to contribute to these important issues with some of the best creative minds on the planet. The future is creative. Seize it. Save your spot at the table at creative3.co. I recently heard that one of the companies that's been featured on This Week in Startups Australia was looking to raise some money and that they were actually having some trouble. And I was surprised at this because it's a great team. It's a great story. It's a great pitch deck. They have all of the pieces that I've identified to make them a good investment. So I reached out to them and said, listen, is there just anything that I can do to help? And within a few hours, I got an email back. Thanks very much, Mark. This is where we are in our investment process. And here's the pitch deck. So I got everything I needed right away. Not too much information, but just the right amount of information, both to be able to judge my capacity to be able to lead them to investment. But they'd given me the tools that I need so I could be their own sales force, so that I could actually go out and speak for them. And that shows me that they are ready, that they're serious, that they're taking this in the right frame of mind, that they're going to be taking money because they understand already how they're going to be able to return that investment. And I'm hoping after this episode, all of the entrepreneurs out there will understand why this is so important. Big thanks to Twisted Sponsors, MYOB, UTS, and Creative3. Their support makes our podcast possible. Now, we've recently rebuilt and relaunched our website at TWIStartupsAUS.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links, all the stories. Check it out at TWIStartupsAUS.com. We'll be back soon with another great episode of Startup Stories from the heart of Australia's startup community. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. Startups Australia.